Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. Jesus shows up on the scene as a religious leader, a teacher of the law, yet he's constantly doing things that are out of bounds, breaking the rules. Does that mean it's okay for us as Christ followers to break the rules? And if so, which ones should we break and why? So today we're back in our study of Mark. We took a week off right after our Israel trip so that I could just be selfish and talk about what I wanted to talk about. Talked about the temple last week. Um, But we're back in Mark again, and we're studying Mark so that we can study Jesus. The whole purpose of our study on Mark is so that we can rediscover who Jesus really is as Mark the gospel writer portrays him to us. And if you'll remember, we talked on the first week about the difference between biography and bios. Remember, Mark is not out to give us a biography of Jesus. A biography is where you, you know, you start at the beginning of a person's life, more or less, or at the beginning of the story of that person's life, and you just work through that person's life with as much detail as possible till you get to the end. That's a biography. But that's not what Mark is trying to do here with Jesus. He's using a different literary style called bios. And that's where you take snippets from that person's life from here and there, and you put them together to show kind of an umbrella picture of who that person is. And that's what we see in really all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We see this bios literary style. That's what they're going for. The first set of bios narratives, the first few little chunks we went through in chapter one, and it took us a long time to get through that. But Mark wants you to take a long time here because he's showing you something about Jesus, right? We're, We're seeing that there's something different, something new, something vibrant about Jesus that nobody else has ever seen before. Jesus is like no other. Right, we saw him, he showed up, he was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit came down, God's voice erupted from heaven, and then Jesus goes to be tempted for 40 days, he comes back and he begins to preach the gospel, and dude, when Jesus preaches, people are astounded, right, they're astounded, they're astonished at what he says, he teaches like no one else ever has with exousia authority, And boy, when he talks spiritually, stuff happens. People begin to be healed in the wake of his teaching as he's touching people's lives. And demons begin to challenge his authority and he casts them all out. Man, a lot of stuff has really been going on and Mark's been showing us the character, the nature of Jesus himself. But then when you get to chapter two, the tone and the nature of those narratives start to change. You start to see Mark trying to show us something different with these bios narratives starting in chapter two. We saw it last week when, uh, sorry, two weeks ago when Ken Can unpacked the story of the paralytic being lowered down from the rooftop. You remember that story? And so Jesus does something incredible here. He does something incredible. The man is lowered because what does he want? What does he want? Healing. But that's not what Jesus gave him. Not at first. The first thing that Jesus did, looked at him and said, son, you're what? 
Your sins are forgiven. Your sins, Jesus forgives sins. Hold on, that's a whole other thing going on here. That's not even just like, that's not on the order of just the astonishing teaching and the miracles, the healings and the casting out. That's a whole other level of stuff. Sins forgiven. The Pharisees don't react well to this because they know the law. They know the scripture. They know who in the heck has the authority to forgive sin. This guy? No, only one has the authority to forgive sin. Who is it? God alone forgives sin. And this guy, who in the heck does he think he is forgiving sin? Is Jesus a blasphemer? He's claiming to have the same authority as God. So Jesus might, in fact, be a blasphemer. And what is the penalty in that culture for blasphemy? Death. They put you in the middle of a circle and they throw big rocks at your head until you're dead. That's the penalty. So you can see what the Pharisees are already starting to think about Jesus. Hold on, hold on. We see the exousia, the authority. We've seen him cast out demons. He's doing amazing teaching. All this is incredible. But now hold on a second. He's identifying himself with God himself. Hold on a minute. And Jesus, in this next series of bios units, starts ticking the religious people off. So we've got several in a row now in chapters 2 and 3 where Jesus just does something to show that he might be unhinged. He might be crazy or he might be a blasphemer. We see several in a row where Jesus just ticks off the religious people, starting with that one where uh, the paralyzed guy was lowered from the rooftop. Next, we see a passage we've already covered earlier where Jesus calls another disciple. He invites one guy to follow him. Do you know who he is? That's right. It's Levi. <laughs> gotcha. It's Levi. Do you know anyone named Levi, Leah? He calls Levi to follow him. Yeah, Levi, otherwise known as Matthew. Yeah, and what is Matthew's job? Tax collector. So Jesus, this rabbi, calls a guy to follow him who is the enemy of the Jewish people. He's a traitor to his own kinfolk. This is a Jewish guy who has been bought out by the Romans. He is unfairly taxing his own people and taking an unfair large cut. And he's making money off of effectively stealing from his own people. So the good religious Jewish people hate the tax collectors. And here's Jesus calling Levi to follow him. How dare he do this? This is getting way out of bounds. This is getting unreasonable. You don't talk to tax collectors. They are unholy of all the unholy people. They're evil. They're bad. You don't mess with them. But then Jesus makes it worse because later Matthew throws a dinner party and who comes to a tax collector dinner party? Tax collectors. Thank you, Mike Ivester. Yeah, tax collectors. So all of the worst of the worst come and they are hanging out with Jesus and Jesus hanging out with them at the party. And that really gets the Pharisees going. In fact, they come to him and they're like, how can you eat 
with such scum. That's what they say. They call them scum. These people are the scum of the... Can you imagine? Can you imagine me, Wes, coming to you going, why do you work with such scum? Why do you, why do you work with such scum? How would you feel about me if I judge the people you work with that harshly? But here's the religious people saying, Jesus, why do you eat with such scum? And Jesus responds in Mark 2 exactly the way you and I would expect Jesus to respond. He says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but only those who are sick. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. In other words, Jesus is saying kind of the same thing we always say around here. He says, I'm here I'm here doing things nobody else is doing in order to reach people nobody else is reaching. You don't want to talk to them. You don't want to touch them. But I'm here for them, for those that you deem unworthy, the ones that you think are the scum of the earth. In other words, this is the first blank on your page, Jesus is doing something new. He's doing something new. All right, the religious people had their boundary lines drawn. They knew exactly what they could and couldn't do. This is the way you operate Judaism. This is the way you operate the covenant. The way you have a relationship with God fits neatly into this box. And you do not violate the rules. You do not break the commands. You don't get outside the box. This is what we do. And here's Jesus way outside the lines. And it ticks them off. They see him teaching with exousia authority, but he seems to think that the rules don't apply to him. Partying with the party people, hanging with the tax collector, claiming to forgive sin. Jesus is truly like no other. So Mark is showing us something about Jesus. And we're going to pick up the story today in Mark 2:18, And we're going to look at the next little bios unit. And we're going to see how Jesus creates even more tension between himself and the religious people by just doing what he does. So we pick up the story here. John and his disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people, we don't know who the people were. I think we can maybe assume they were Pharisees, but it doesn't say for sure. People came to Jesus and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? What's going on here? Don't the rules apply? We got to go without eating. Why don't you guys have to go without eating? So they're pushing back just a little bit. Before we get into it, we got to make sure we all understand what even is fasting. Okay, what is fasting? You know, fasting isn't something you do really quickly, okay? That's not it. Fasting means you don't. Fasting means you don't eat. Boy, this is the early service. Fasting means you don't what? All right, good. Thank you. Fasting means you don't eat. It means that you've chosen for a particular period of time. You've chosen that you will deny yourself and you will not eat. Right? You are not going to gratify your own personal desires. You're not going to gratify your own hunger. You're going to choose to abstain from eating or from whatever that you're fasting from. And you are going to deny yourself. And instead, you're going to devote yourself to God. 
Fasting is a, you know, biblical principle. You know, it's, it's found all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, if you're using, excuse me, your digital notes today, you'll see that I've made sure to include kind of a list of a bunch of places where the Jewish people were fasting for various reasons. They fasted for uh, mourning for the passing of a king. They fasted for fear on the eve of a battle they thought they were going to lose. They fasted for repentance and turning from pagan gods and turning back to the one true God. I mean, they fasted for various different reasons. But it all comes down to this idea that fasting is all about humility and mourning. It's sorrowful. Yeah, you might be surprised to learn that fasting is commanded only one time by God in the entire Old Testament. Only one time. It's only found one command by God, and that's in Leviticus 23. It's only there for one reason and one reason only. Here's what he says. Be careful to celebrate the Day of Atonement on the 10th day of the same month, nine days after the festival of the trumpets. In other words, nine days after you feast, you're going to fast. He said you must observe it as an official day for holy assembly, a day to, here it is, deny yourselves. That means to fast and present special gifts to the Lord. Do no work during that entire day because it is the day of atonement when offerings of purification are made for you, making you right with the Lord your God. This is the only time God commands fasting, and he commands it only for one reason, and that's to atone for sin. That's to say, I'm sorry, I'm a filthy, no good sinner, I'll never measure up, and I'm sorry, and I want to seek you instead of seeking myself. In other words, next blank on your page, fasting is commanded for the mourning of sin. It's commanded so that you will mourn for your sin, grieve for the fact that you are a sinner. And so, of course, fasting became associated with that humility, with that sorrow, with that devotion to God. And that's why it became a spiritual practice. It was never regulated to only the Day of Atonement. It's just that that was the only day it was commanded on. So the Jewish people would practice it from time to time for various different reasons. Uh, Like I said, it became a somber, serious expression of devotion to God. By the time you get to Jesus' day, the Pharisees had implemented a a two-day-a-week fast. You fasted every Monday and every Thursday. You'd fast from uh, sun up to sundown. So if it's dark, you can eat, but if it's light, you can't. So they would fast those two days a week. And we don't know if it was one of those two days on which this question was asked, or if it was another reason they were fasting. All we know is that the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Jesus talked about fasting. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about what this was. Remember, it's sorrowful, it's mournful, but Jesus didn't like that too much, right? Because in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, he says, when you fast, don't make it obvious like the hypocrites do, for they try to look all miserable and disheveled so people will admire them. Oh, oh, pray for me, I'm fasting today. You know, and oh, okay, you got your hair all messed up and you're wearing your old clothes and you look awful. And he's saying, stop, stop that, stop that. 
He says, I tell you the truth, that's the only reward they'll ever get. They might get the admiration of some gullible people, but that's all they're going to get out of fasting. He goes on and he says, run a comb through your hair, wash your face, and smile when you talk to people. Keep fasting between you and me, he says. This is not between you and everybody. This is between you and me. It's important, but it's to be private, not to be all public. So Jesus has asked this question, why do you guys not fast when everybody else has to? And here's the way, the interesting way Jesus responds. He responds in a way that really rattled him a little bit. He says in Mark 2, he says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So he's saying, sure, sure, there's a day coming when I'm not going to be here, and fasting is totally appropriate. But right now, right now while I'm here, dude, this is just too good. This is too good because the bridegroom has arrived. This is a huge thing. Jesus has already identified himself with God by forgiving sins, but now, now he calls himself the bridegroom. This is a huge thing because for all of the history of Judaism, God has described himself as a bridegroom waiting for the great wedding feast, the day that the bride and the groom will finally be together. We talked last week about the temple and how God's great dream was that he would be our God and that we would be his people, that he would finally live among his people. But that was never going to be possible before Jesus. Remember, the temple had that separation in there. The veil, 60 feet tall and four inches thick. It represented the separation between God and us. He could live among us, but not really with us. Right? That separation between us and God is what? What separates us from God? Our sin, my sin, it separates me from God. It sets me apart from Him. He's holy, and I am not. I'm broken. I'm filthy with sin. And that sin that I have doesn't just separate me from Him, but it puts me under God's judgment. Because God and sin can never coexist. One has got to go, and I promise you, your sin is never a threat to God. It's only a threat to you. Right? And so that's why the Bible says the wages of sin is, is death. The punishment for sin is death. And it's only that shedding of blood. It's only death that can satisfy a holy God for the penalty, the judgment of my sin. And that's why Jesus came. Because he is the sacrificial lamb of God. He came here and he put his own body on the cross they put him on there but he willingly went to the cross where all of the judgment for my sin everything I'd ever done it was all heaped onto Jesus and Jesus alone paid the price for all of your sin all of my sin 
making us right finally with God. He took our sin to the grave, but three days later he walked out of that grave with new life. You see, he says, I am doing something new. The first time we ever thought about that was in Isaiah 53 in this messianic passage. He says, God says, I'm about to do something new. See, I've already begun. Do you not see it? God has a plan to do something new, something outside the boundaries, something that's gonna rattle everybody's cage. In Hosea 2, God says, I will make you my people. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you, and I will make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. I'm doing something new. It's totally different. A whole new take on everything. This doesn't fit inside the box. It doesn't fit inside the boundaries. No wonder Jesus is always out of bounds. No wonder he's always doing something that seems to violate the law. No wonder the Pharisees are at odds with him increasingly as we go through the book of Mark because Jesus is doing something new, something brand new. He turns our mourning into dancing. He turns our sorrow into joy. The groom has arrived, and it's not a funeral, it's a wedding. It's time to celebrate that the bridegroom has come, and the bride and the groom are finally going to be together. The next blank on your page Here's the deal. How can you fast when it's time to feast? That's what Jesus is saying. How can you fast when it's time to feast? He's doing something totally new. And he illustrates this idea with two little illustrations. And I'm going to try to explain them a little bit because I think they're kind of foreign to our ears. And you'll recognize both of them. The first illustration he gives is about cloth. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Now, I have a hard time relating to this because my clothes come from Walmart, (laughs) right? My clothes come from, my jeans came from Amazon.com. And you know what? I got them in my cart, and when my jeans, when my jeans get all faded and wore out and start to have holes, you know what I do? I just get on my Amazon and just order it again. And I get a new set. They just come right on, a whole new set, and you don't know the difference. This is a newer set, right? Because we have disposable clothes today. We're so filthy rich. You know, we don't, we don't, try, to, we don't try to keep these pants going for the rest of our lives. I mean, if they develop holes, chuck them. I'm getting new ones. But that's not the mentality of the people in Jesus' day. They didn't have Walmart They didn't have a mall down the road. They didn't have the outlet center. They didn't have Amazon. When they had clothes, they had to to keep those things going for as long as they would go. So when they get a tear, say they get a tear in the seam in their shoulder, they would have to patch it so that it would continue to last and serve them longer. And they knew something that, that we don't have to think about. You know, when you get your clothes, when you buy a, when you buy a Sola t-shirt at the Orchard Church, you think you want a large until you wash it once. And then you realize, oh, I needed an extra large. Sorry to break it to you. 
<laughs> it's the shirt's fault, not you, I promise. Right? Because they shrink up. You wash them, they shrink right up. They get significantly smaller. And what Jesus is talking about is when you have those clothes and, and you've had this, I've had this tunic for years now. I've had this shirt for years. That means it's been washed twice. I, I'll, I'll wear my shirts multiple times sometimes before I wash them. Don't tell them, Sherry. Okay. <laughs> so I wash my clothes and they shrink up a little bit and then I get that rip so I want to patch it. If I, if I got to make this shirt last, I'll put a patch. But if that's unshrunk cloth I put on there, guess what happens? It starts to shrink. But the rest of the shirt's already shrunk. So it starts to tear away, and it creates a bigger problem than I had in the first place. Does that make sense? Did I need to explain all that out, or did you have it figured out already? You got it already. Okay, thanks. My job is worthless. But there's one other illustration he gives, and this is my favorite one, and I think you'll recognize this one also. He says this, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Yeah, um, how many of you guys have wineskins at your house? Yeah, that's what I thought. Nobody, nobody. Okay, so... Um, we don't have wineskins today. We don't really do that. Uh, and I thought about it. The closest thing I've got to a wineskin is my 16-ounce double-wall insulated aluminum coffee mug. And I love my coffee mug. Is anybody else in love with their coffee mug like I am? Okay, one, thank you. I take this thing and I fill it with coffee multiple times a day. And I'm sipping on this thing anywhere, everywhere I go, I got my coffee mug with me, okay? I, I put it in there, and that coffee will, dude, it will last a long time, okay? I mean, it, it stays hot for a long, long time. And I'll tell you my favorite thing, my fa this thing, this thing, well, first of all, I gotta tell you, these things, aluminum ones, they're pretty much indestructible, right? I mean, they're pretty, they're pretty good, let me tell you. Uh, I put this thing in the cup holder, Scott, on my motorcycle, and uh, I was riding down the road, and I got to where I had to do a slow turn. Slow turn. You know, fast turn is a lean. Slow turn is a turn of the handlebars. And when I had the thing in the coffee, it had slid down pretty far, and I turned it, and this thing is so solid that it hit the side of the tank, and it cracked the bezel around my, uh, around my speedometer on my motorcycle. My cup broke the motorcycle <laughs> so bad that the computer and the bike couldn't talk to the computer in the in the speedometer and it wouldn't start took him three months to get me a replacement and this thing came out without a scratch perfect so yeah these things are awesome and my favorite thing about it my favorite thing about it is in the morning um i usually fill it full of coffee before i go to the gym so it's like 5 30 in the morning i'm filling it with coffee but i'm not drinking coffee until after the gym and, you know, that's later. That's like close to 7.30 or 8 o'clock later. It's a lot later. And so this thing sits in my cup holder for all that time. And what happens is I, that morning, man, I have filled it all the way up, man. It's all the way up to here. But it's been sitting all that time. You know what happens during that time? The coffee cools like one degree. So it's still hot and steaming, but that steam has built up. So what I do is I get... The coffee mug, hours later, I love, I love this. And it won't do it now, but I love this in the morning. I just pop the top. 
And after it's been sitting there for so long, that pressure from the steam is built up and it's all of a sudden raining my dream come true. It's raining coffee wherever I am. Coffee goes everywhere and I love it. Steam is all in the air and then I take my first sip in the morning. Oh, it's so good. It's like heaven on earth. Can I get an amen? Oh, I'm craving another. This one's almost done. I'm craving some more. Um, I love that because that pressure builds up and it pops. That's a little, but not a lot, like the wine in the wineskin. Wineskin not made out of aluminum. You know what wineskin's made of? It's in the name. It's a wine skin. Yeah, it's made out of leather. And so it's usually the skin of a goat or it can be the intestines of a goat depending on how gross you want to be. So it's intestines or it's skin and it's, you know, cut up and stitched together into a, into a wine skin. And it's got a little, you know, spout on it. And here's what they would do. They would, they would make the wine. You know what happens when you make wine? You have to take the grapes, those beautiful red juicy grapes, and you break them, you crush them, you stomp them. You know, a grape has to sacrifice its life to make wine. You crush them all up and you mix it all. And then you pour that into the wineskin where it ferments. It ferments in the skin. And what happens is, you, you know, you cork it on the top. And what happens is over a little time, as that wine is fermenting in the skin, it gives off gases. A lot more gases than the steam from my coffee. I, I know a little bit about it just because I got a friend. I, I got a friend that used to make kombucha. I didn't know what that was. I had to look it up. Apparently, it's alcoholic tea. And no one said they've been on that. Probably good. <laughs> so it's, it's alcoholic tea you make. It's kombucha. Do you know what this is? Am I the only one that didn't know? Okay. So he makes it in this big glass. He showed it to me once, this big glass jar, big old thing. And um, he told me, he said, it's got a screw-on lid. He said, but I can't put the screw-on lid on until after it's all good and fermented because if I screw the lid on, guess what happens? The gases come out, the pressure builds up, and the whole thing will explode. And then I got glass and tea everywhere. So instead of the screw-on lid, he puts cheesecloth over the top so it can breathe as it ferments. So that's what happens in the wineskin is as it's fermenting, it's giving off the gas, but it's sealed up pretty well. So the gas doesn't escape so well, and what happens is the gas builds up inside, and as it builds up, it morphs and shapes the wineskin. The wineskin actually takes on a whole different size and shape. It's not the same as it was when the wine was first poured in there. Over the time, as that wine becomes sweeter and sweeter, becomes better and better, it changes the nature of the wineskin. And here's the thing about the wineskin. It has the capacity to be shaped, reshaped by the wine one time. One time. It only works once. So you, you use a new wine skin for new wine, but you never put new wine in a, a once used wine skin because by that time it's all dried out and it won't expand. It will only crack and now you've lost the wine and the wine skin. So Jesus is talking about how he is putting new wine into new wine skins. In other words, next blank on your page, 
Jesus' new wine isn't compatible with the old. What he's doing is so different, it's not even compatible with the old boundary system. No wonder Jesus always seems so out of bounds. No wonder it seems like he thinks the rules don't apply to him. No wonder the hierarchy and structure doesn't seem to work with Jesus. Right at the end of it all in Revelation 19, he says, let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to God for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. In other words, in other words, the bride, that's us, is being dressed by the good deeds that she is doing, the things that she's doing as God is doing the crushing and the breaking and the pouring as he's reforming and remaking us into something new. He is shaping and molding us. He's working the spirit into us and he's working the sin out of us. And it changes us and we're being transformed into his image. Aren't we? Aren't we? Aren't you different today than you were when you first met him? Because I know, I know we all have our own, our own box, our own boundaries that we've drawn, right? And we've, and we've said it. We've said it in certain ways. You know, I'll, I'll go to church, but I'm not going to serve. You know, I, I, I'll sing the songs, but I'm not going to give, back to him you know I, I'll be there Sunday morning but I don't have a night of the week to be in a life group sorry I just get I'm too tired you know I'm a Christian but I will not talk about him at work that's out of bounds you know when I pray when I pray I, I'm going to ask him to change all the things in my life you, you know this boundary you and I do it all the time. We're always asking God to change the things in my life. You know, change my job. Change my income level. Amen. Change my spouse. Change my kids. Please change my kids. Shut them up. Change my health. You know, we're always asking God to change the things in our life, but the purpose of the new wine isn't to change the things, it's to change you. It's to change you, it's to make you new. It's to transform you into his image. And that happens through the breaking and the crushing and the pouring and the fermenting. It happens through all of it. And sometimes, sometimes you just got to lay your life down in order to see God do the work he wants to do. That's why he says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself. Fast from the things that you want and take up your cross and follow me. That's why we say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. That's why we serve. That's why we give. It's because we've gotten a taste of the new wine and we want more. We've tasted and seen how sweet he is and we just want more of that. So we keep giving, we keep serving, and we keep getting blessed more and more. We've met the bridegroom and he has struck the final blow against sin and death. He has once and for all defeated our enemy. He's given us his spirit 
and nothing about us will ever be the same. Can I get an amen? We've tasted and seen that the wine is good. And last blank on your page, nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else is as good as him. Nothing, Lord, is better than you.